Good evening, church. Am I on? Can you hear me? Hold on. There we go. Can you hear me? How's everyone doing this evening? Good. How's everyone doing this evening? There we go. What a beautiful day in Miami. Beautiful weekend. I'm excited uh, about today for many different reasons. This morning at our Crossbridge Pinecrest campus, we celebrated 15 years of Crossbridge in Miami. Can we give God a round of applause? So if you didn't know, Crossbridge Church is a family of churches committed to seek the renewal of cities through the power of the gospel. We have Crossbridge churches in Pinecrest, in Key Biscayne, Miami Springs, Homestead. We have a Chinese church as well as a Spanish-speaking church in our Miami Springs location. It's amazing to see how God has grown this movement uh, to be seven congregations, five churches in Miami, one in Sao Paulo, Brazil. The bridge movement was served. We, God has been so gracious to our church, and he has continued to bring incredible people that give time and talent and treasure, that give ideas and prayers to support the work and the mission of the church. And so today is an exciting day as we celebrate 15 years in Miami, and we look forward to 15 more. If I have not had the privilege of meeting you, my name is Carter. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossbridge. And some of you have asked me, why do I introduce myself every single week? You're like, I know your name is Carter. You don't need to tell anyone. And that is because God brings new people every week. And I want everyone here to know my name, Pastor Johnny's name, the name of our leaders. Because, well, one, you're sitting down to listen to me preach. It's helpful to know my name. But it's also, too, because... We are committed as a church to be driven by the community, and we want to open up space for us to get to know each other. And so I hope after service, as we do every week, you stick around, you make a friend, you meet people in this community, you find a place where you can belong, and then you come up and say hi to me and to Pastor Johnny and others as well. That is the heartbeat of our church. We are a church for people, and we want to be on journey and on mission together for Jesus and for this city. Uh, we believe in that. And that's why after service this evening, we're going to have this sign-up party because one of the things we were thinking about is that we've been in this series in the book of Isaiah for the past three weeks, and we're leading up to Serve Week. It's culminating in this one church worship service at Key Biscayne on October 1st at 10.30 in the morning. So us night church people, we got to set our calendar. we got to be there in the morning because if you come here at 5 p.m. on October 1st, you'll be alone with like a handful of other people that didn't listen, Okay. So we want to be there, we want to be together as one big church, but also we want to serve throughout Serve Week. We want to partner together with these organizations doing amazing work. We want to care for the needs of people in our city, and not just for one week, but one week that launches us into many, many more weeks and projects, and really just a culture of serving and generosity within our church. And so that's why we're having the sign-up party, because we know the website is beautiful. There's 30-plus projects. It can be quite overwhelming. You may have just joined the church, and you're thinking about, hey, I, I want to serve, but like, I don't want to show up and be alone. That would be weird. So there's four projects in the back, and you can know you're signing up with your friends. We made it easy, okay? So if you haven't signed up, sign up tonight for one of those four projects or pick one. Uh, we are believing and praying for 100% participation. Clear your calendar. Take a break from studying serve the city, take a day off of work, and care for the needs of others. So this evening, we're in Isaiah chapter 49. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. It's going to be on the screen behind me. 
It's always in the Crossbridge Brickle app. There's a notes section with a lot of notes and questions that you can use this evening and throughout the week. But we're going to be in this passage, Isaiah 49. It's week four of our series in the book of Isaiah, moving us towards Serve Week. And as I was preparing this sermon, I was thinking particularly about two people. Because this message cuts at the heart of two people. Because there's an overriding theme that Isaiah is communicating here in this passage. The first person that this directly speaks to is the person that may feel like they don't belong in God's family. And maybe that's you tonight. Maybe it took everything in you to come here. You came alone, or you know a friend, or it was tough, or you came to church feeling like, I don't know if I fit in. I don't know if I'll be welcomed. I don't know if I'll be accepted. If people really knew me, certainly, I wouldn't be welcomed. Maybe you have barriers between feeling accepted because of your past, because of your culture, because of the spiritual place you're in. Maybe you feel like because opinions and beliefs that you have, your political persuasion, your mother tongue, whatever it may be, that there's barriers for you to not be fully accepted. Maybe you join online because you're not ready to come into the room yet for fear that you won't be accepted. A lot of people feel like that. They can't belong. They're nervous. They won't fit in. The message tonight screams loud and clear that King Jesus invites you and every other person you know into his family, that you matter to him, that you belong in his family, and you're invited to be a part of it, no matter what, period. Now, the second person I was thinking about is the person that might say, I believe that. I believe that Jesus invites all people and his salvation is for all people and everybody should belong. But if I really dig deep and humble myself to access some of my feelings, there are certain people that I don't feel belong in my church, that they can find a different church. Because church for me needs to kind of fit my comforts, it needs to fit my prerogatives, it needs to look and feel a certain way, it needs to attract people like me because church needs to be for my comforts. And though I would never say that it excludes people because I want people to know that God loves them, I want the church to attract people that are comfortable for me. There's certain people I feel like would be difficult for me to be in community with. Well, Jesus says... That he invites every person, including the people that you may feel uncomfortable with. See, at the foot of the cross, Jesus invites everyone, you and your neighbor. After service, after worship, and after time of reading God's word this evening, we come every week to the table. And the table of communion, which is a table that Jesus sets by means of his grace for every person that believes in faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord... They are invited to the table that Jesus has set, period, end of story. You don't get to exclude anyone because Jesus doesn't. And so it challenges us in some of our maybe held positions and comforts to say, am I okay and open with the church that I'm a part of accepting and and engaging all types of people to see Jesus? Because Jesus invites all types of people to himself. This is what the message is pointing to in Isaiah 49. It's what Jesus is going to be sharing with you and me is that you belong here and so does your neighbor. You belong here 
and so does your neighbor. You can look around the room right now and say every single person that you see belongs here. The person that you get coffee from in the morning, the person that you work with, your boss, the person that you walk by on the street, every single person you know belongs here. Do you believe that? Because Jesus invites them to himself. So we're going to be in Isaiah 49, and I'm not going to do a big setup for this passage because the past three weeks as we've been in this book, I've set up the book of Isaiah, and I've been sharing kind of the, the story and the history. So if you've missed those sermons, you can go back on YouTube or podcast services and listen. But essentially, God's people are in exile in Babylon. They have some future hope, which is that King Cyrus, who God has kind of positioned and anointed, he's not a believer in God, and yet God is using him to help one day bring the Israelites from Babylon in captivity back to Jerusalem. They're not there yet, but that's coming. And so as they're in this place, Isaiah, a prophet of God, the mouthpiece of God, is sharing Good news is sharing prophetic words to God's people in the midst of captivity. Here in Isaiah 49, there's a shift. And you're going to catch it when we read it here in verse 1. Here's what it says. Verse 1, it says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. So the first thing to notice here is that this is a first-person point of view. Someone is speaking, and we need to ask the question, who is speaking? Well, we get a couple clues here. It says, this is one who the Lord called from the womb. It is one who, from the body of my mother in utero, this person was named. And this person is a person of significance because as this person is speaking, they are saying some very strong and declarative things, like, give attention, O people from afar, O coastlands, listen to what I'm about to say. This is a person of influence, a person of significance, that is calling people from afar to listen. Now remember, this is being written to God's people who are in Babylon in captivity, they are, one, nowhere near the coast. They're about 50 miles, roughly, ancient Babylon. It's about 50 miles from modern-day Baghdad. So they're not near the coast. And they are also not people from afar. They are God's people. They are people from within. And yet, this person of significance, called in the womb, named by God in utero, is calling people from the coastlands. And is calling people from afar. You have to feel the significance of what is being said by this person, which is, I am calling not only the people in Babylon, my people, Israel, but I'm calling people from all corners of the earth, rival nations of Israel, people of different cultures, people of different languages, people raised under different religious practices with different religious beliefs. In fact, even enemies of Israel. These are all the people that would be encapsulated in people from afar, people living on the coast. So what is this person saying? Here's what he says, verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hit me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. Well, the first thing is the very first verse of Verse 2, the very first line, it says, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. 
So what's being said here is that there's something powerful and significant about the words that this person says. There's power in the mouth, in the words, in the revelation that is shared. That the power that this person wields is not through force or coercion or military power. It's actually through the power of his words. It's like a sharp sword. But he's been hidden away. It says that it's like a sword covered by the hand. It's like a polished arrow ready to be pulled back and shot, but it's still in the quiver. So here's what Isaiah is saying in, in verse 2. As this person is speaking, this person is saying, the power that I wield is in my words, which are sharp as a sword. But I've been intentionally prepared by God who chose me in the womb, who named me in the womb. I'm calling all people to listen to what I say, but my plan has been prepared and has been pulled back for just the right time to release. This is who this person is, a different kind of leader that God has planned for the right time. And what is the revelation? What is going to be shared? What is calling all people from afar to Listen, and to him, verse 3, and he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. There's our answer. If you were with us last week, you know that in the book of Isaiah, there are four songs, and these four songs are called servant songs. And so maybe that jumped out to you where you read, you are my servant, and you thought, aha, is this another servant song? Well, you're right. It's the second one. And I said last week that every servant song is about who? Let's sing again. It's about who? Jesus. It's the answer in church. Whenever I do that, the answer is Jesus, my friends. So who is the one speaking? Jesus. Jesus is the one called in the womb, named in the womb. He's the one whose power is in his words, who calls attention to all people, both within God's family and people from afar, of different cultures, different religious practices, different backgrounds, different languages, different tongues. People viewed as enemies, he calls. He wants them to give attention to what he says, and he's been prepared intentionally for the right time to be shot out like an arrow, hidden like a sword under the hand. Jesus is the one speaking. Now, I say this all the time. When you read the Bible, you're meant to read it slow, not rush it. Sometimes we read the, bottle, that we, we read the Bible like we order from McDonald's. We order it quick. We get it quick. We eat it quick because we don't want to think that we actually just ate it. We want to move on, you know? Like, did I do that? I don't know. Sometimes we treat time in God's word and time reading the Bible like that. Like, let me, I just got to do it. Let me read it. Let me read it fast. And there's moments and times that we have seasons like it's better to read than not read, okay? But you're meant to read the Bible slowly. Like a really nice meal, a fine dining meal where there's like ingredients and there's foam and there's gas coming out and you're supposed to taste like a thousand. F it's supposed to be like that. We read so fast. And so I wanted to give you a resource tonight. This is side note. I just thought I would share it. It's in the notes app on the, on the Crossbridge app, but it's also on the screen. There is a website called the Gospel Coalition. Some of you are familiar. And there is a free resource. If you just type in thegospelcoalition.org slash commentary, okay? Listen, this is a commentary for every book in the Bible, and it's free. So you're reading, pick a book. You're reading the book of 
1 Corinthians, and you're like, I don't know what this means, just go to this website and look up 1 Corinthians, and there's notes from scholars and theologians given to you for free. It's an amazing resource. Now, this is more macro level. There's deeper and more intricate commentaries, and if you're a nerd like me and you want to go deep and you're ready for that, then come to, I'll give you some more. I'll overwhelm you with commentaries, okay? But this is a great resource because you're meant to read slow. And this is an example of that. So if you read this verse right here, verse 3, really fast, you're going to miss what it's saying. In fact, the first time I read it, I was thinking something completely different than what the text is actually saying. I had to slow down. Here's what it says. You are, and he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now, Jesus is the one speaking in verse 1 and 2. It's very clear, speaking about his life and his ministry. It's apparent. Jesus was named in Mary's womb, chosen by God, whose words are sharper than a sword, who was prepared for the right time, who's calling all people to himself. I mean, it's very clearly Jesus. But then the shift here feels off. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So you have to think a couple things. Okay, did this all of a sudden shift off of Jesus to Israel, God's people? So maybe, maybe we had it all wrong in the beginning. Maybe what it is is maybe Isaiah, the prophet of God, is saying, it's kind of loosely connected to Jesus, but maybe the prophet of God is saying that Israel, God's people, you are chosen in the womb. God has a purpose for you, and he knows your name. And he has prepared a mission for you that he will unleash at the right time like a sword that is hidden by the hand. You are like a polished arrow that he will pull back and he will shoot just at the right time. And that you need to be wise and careful with your words because they are sharp as a sword. Now that will preach. But that's not what it says. It says, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. The person that is speaking... Here is God the Father. He is saying, the one who chose this person in the womb, who named him in the womb, who's preparing him for the right time. And he is saying of this person, the servant, who we know is Jesus, that he is Israel. He's God's people. Now this is profound. It is saying that Jesus will function as Israel. That Jesus will function as God's people. That God's people will be caught up in Jesus' life and mission. He will act as a representative for them. They will be caught up in him. He will function as them. And they will be glorified in him. What that means is that Jesus is for you and me what we could never be for ourselves. Jesus, the servant of God, chosen and prepared, is for you and me what we could never be for ourselves. All throughout the scripture, it is pointing to the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus Christ, the servant, that he is our salvation, that he is our mission, that he is our hope, that he is our peace, that our value is in him, our worth is found in him. All that we are is caught up in him, and this verse is telling us that roughly 700 years before Jesus is born, that he will function 
as God's people, that Jesus is for you and me what we could never be for ourselves. We could never generate our own salvation. We are not nearly good enough. In fact, we're flawed. We cannot protect our own peace. It will get dashed if our peace is up to us. Our hope, if it is on our shoulders, will, wane, will bear heavy upon us. Our opinion, the opinions of others, so easily influence our view of ourselves and our worth. And so if that is what we are basing our value on, it is fragile. Our hope is in Christ. Our salvation is in Christ. Our peace is in Christ. Our worth and value is in Christ. And our mission. If the mission of your life is devoid of God, it will be misguided. <laughs> and it will fail you. But our mission is in Him. Jesus must be for you and me what we could never be for ourselves. See, God's people are those who are raised in the faith. Like Israel. Raised within a family, within a church where the gospel is preached. These are God's people that believe in Jesus. But God's people are also those from different backgrounds, with different traditions, and different beliefs that God calls to himself. People from afar. God's calling all people to be near to him. He's saying, give attention to me, not only you in Babylon, but you from afar, from the coast I'm inviting all people to hear what I have to say. Jesus is for you and for your neighbor. And his ministry was prepared at just the right time. And his ministry was shocking. In fact, verse 4 jumps into the ministry of Jesus. It says this. But I said, Jesus is speaking. I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Now this may throw you off. If you know, okay, Jesus is the servant of God, chosen and called. He has been prepared like a polished arrow, like a sword. His, his words are sharp as a sword. He will function as God's people. He is glorified, and we in him. And yet, wait, his ministry feels like he labored in vain, that he spent his strength for nothing. I mean, shouldn't Jesus' ministry and mission just feel like one triumphal march? There cannot be any feeling of failure at all. How could there be? Look what it says. I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. What does that mean? Last week I said that God does not approach and seek to transform the arrogance and the oppression of this world with more arrogance and oppression. Rather, he comes with humility and simplicity and patience and love to bring justice to the nations. And the way in which God shoots the arrow of the servant of God, of God in the flesh, of the promised Messiah is totally unexpected too. He comes lowly and humble, born to a poor family, laid in a feeding trough for animals. No chariots, no throne, no palace. Jesus is born fully human, and yet he's not only human, he's fully God. But listen, he's not less than human. He's fully human and fully God, but he's not less than human. 
That is so important for you to hear. Sometimes we can, we can kind of recite the doctrine of the church. Like, Jesus is fully God and fully man. But we kind of believe like he's not really fully human because he's fully God. Right? Like, he's not, he doesn't get us. He doesn't understand us. He doesn't know what it's like to live the life that I've lived. He doesn't know what it's like to feel what I feel. He doesn't know what it's like to struggle the way that I struggle. No, Jesus is fully God. Yes, he is unlike us, and yet he is like us. He's fully human. He's not less than. And his ministry, his life, what he faced and endured was so that he could empathize with you and what you face. He faced frustration. He faced feelings of futility like he shares here in verse 4 of Isaiah 49. He faced rejection. Jesus came not only to be for you and me what we could not be for ourselves, but he came to bear all that we face so that he could empathize with us. Consider Jesus' life, friends. Consider what he carried and what he faced, and yet with perfect obedience to God the Father. Jesus knows what it's like to be labeled. He was labeled a drunkard and a sinner because of the people he hung out with. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected. The religious elite, the Pharisees, rejected Jesus. They wouldn't let him into his circles. They wanted nothing to do with him. In fact, they actively sought to destroy him, leading to the cross. Jesus knows what it's like to be viewed a failure Consider when Jesus goes to the cross, which was his mission all along, seemingly every single person that was close to him, his best friends, the disciples, they all viewed the cross as a failure. They thought it was over. They locked their doors and gave up. And yet he was perfectly obedient till the end. See, because Jesus is fully God and he's fully human, in his humanity, he relates with us, and we can with him. One of the most beautiful pictures of Jesus and his humanity is when he's in the garden. On the night when he was about to be betrayed by Judas Iscariot, the soldiers are going to come, the religious elite are going to come, and they're going to imprison him. The next day he's going to be crucified. He's praying to God the Father. He's so consumed with stress that it's sweating blood, which is an actual scientific Anomaly that happens when you're under great stress. And he prays this to God. He says, God, take this cup of judgment from me. What, what the translation of that is, is like, I don't want to go through with this. In my humanity, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be tortured and feel pain. I don't want to die. Is there another way? He knows what it's like to feel these things. And yet he ends the prayer, how? Not my will, but yours. See, he knows what it's like to feel the things that we feel. And yet he's not like us in that he was perfectly obedient till the end. He trusted God the Father and the mission that he had for him. God the Son. See, trust ultimately has to do with believing in the final outcome. So here's a question. How do you face the moments in your life where you feel things are pointless? How do you endure seasons where everything seems to be done in vain? How do you face the struggle that you are currently in? Trust 
in the final outcome. That's why, as Jesus says in verse 4, that he's going to feel these things in his life and ministry, he then ends the verse by saying, Yet, surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense, my compensation, with my God. Even though my ministry will be like this, and even though I will face this, and there will be a rejection from the people from afar and from my own people, as I share the word of good news, it will be rejected. I will be labeled. I will face all of these things in my life and ministry, and I will feel the weight of that in my humanity, and yet my right is with God, and my compensation is with God. Jesus is for you and me what we could never be for ourselves, which means our right is with God, and our compensation is with God because of Jesus. Which means that regardless of what you face in your life, you can say these things to yourself. I'm okay in Jesus. I am loved and forgiven in Jesus. And I am blessed by God. Because my right is with God, and my compensation is with God because of Jesus. That means that the final outcome of your life, listen, you need to hear this, the final outcome of your life is not pointless. It's not vanity. It's not. No matter what you're facing, no matter what you will face, the final outcome of your life is not pointless. It is not vanity. It is quite the opposite. The final outcome of your life is victory. It is joy. It is your right is with God. Your compensation is with God. It is Jesus, your Savior forever and all eternity with his people. That is the end. That's the final outcome. That is what you are to trust in, in the difficulty of life. In the feelings of frustration and labels and rejection and failure, you trust in the final outcome. It it, it sounds so simple, friends, but can you just rest in the simple knowledge that God has called you to himself, that Jesus is for you and you matter to him, and he tells you that you're loved and forgiven in him, that you're blessed by him, and because of him, your right is with God, your compensation is with God, and the final outcome of your life is victory. Can you just like rest in that and say, like, praise God for that? That is your story. Jesus is for you and me what we could never be for ourselves. It changes our story. And it was no small thing what Jesus endured. Verse 5 and 6, I love the language here. Verse 5 and 6, look what it says. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant and to bring bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. These are God's people speaking to the people in Babylon. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He's saying the people of faith The the Israelites in Babylon, God's people, I have come to bring them back to God. I have come to gather them once again. But the restoration of God's people, nation Israel, was too small a task for Jesus. Look what it says in verse 6. These are Jesus' words. He says, it is too light a thing (laughs) that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob can't just be the 12 tribes, can't just be Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. 
It was too light of a thing for Jesus and his life and ministry to restore and to redeem a small group of people. Jesus' mission that was prepared like a polished arrow, his words are calling attention to all people for his salvation is to reach the ends of the earth. It is a light for all nations. Jesus' salvation is to restore an estranged world back to him. You see, if you feel like you don't belong, for whatever reason you may feel like you don't belong or that you may not fit in, or if someone knows this, even if God knows this, if God's people knew this, you wouldn't be accepted. Would you hear Jesus' words that you matter to him? You were his mission. His goal and his mission was to bring the nations to himself, people from afar, people from all different backgrounds, raised under all different circumstances, with all different beliefs, to call them to believe in him, to surrender to him, not by coercion, but by the power of his word that he is for them what they could never be for themselves. He's a light for the nations, and his life and ministry proves it. Close with verse 7, it says the following. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, Jesus, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to the one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. And we shift again. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful to the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Do you notice the contrast here? Jesus is the Redeemer of Israel. He's the Holy One. He is the one who princes and rulers will bow down before and prostrate themselves and worship. And yet he is, wait, what? Deeply despised? Abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. This is not the reality that you would expect for this type of person with this nature and character. Again, it's shocking. But was this not Jesus' reality? He was a friend of sinners. He was a man of the margins. He met a woman at a well who was of another race, that the Jews would not relate with, and he showed her love and forgiveness. When a woman caught in the act of adultery is brought before him to be stoned, he shows mercy by saying, someone here cast the first stone if you've not sinned. Jesus was one who went out of the city to the leper colonies to care for those who were outcasted because of a physical condition. Jesus cared for the hunger of people and fed people. Jesus is one who spent time with the overlooked, even with those who are viewed enemies of the people, like the tax collectors. He sat at their table too. Look at the ministry of Jesus. He called children to himself, and elevated childlike faith is beautiful and something to model. He loved his friends and his enemies till the end, knowing they didn't fully know who he was. I want you to consider something. If Jesus is, as we believe, the redeemer of God's people, the holy one, if he is the one, as verse 7 says, where kings and princes shall prostrate themselves and worship him, 
That means that, that Jesus is a person of honor and power and glory. That he is one that if the kings and princes that are you know, removed from everybody else from their high castles and up in their palaces, if they catch word of Jesus and they are going to worship him, everybody will because of his glory and honor. Then why was the function of his ministry with exactly the opposite types of people? Kings and princes will bow before him, and yet Jesus spent his life with the outcast, the overlooked, and the shamed by society. Why? Identity and imitation. Identity. Jesus is for you. If you feel shamed, if you feel guilt, if you feel outcasted, if you feel overlooked, if you feel burdened, if you feel like you don't fit in, if you feel like you have things in your past that will bar you from acceptance, however you feel, Jesus is for you. If you were walking by a city that Jesus was in, he would come to see you. He's for you. Those that feel low, he pulls them up. And those that are high and feel proud because they're kings and they're princes, they're elevated in society, they're promoted in society, they're revered in society, those that are proud, he brings them low and he says, bow before me. He levels the playing field for all people. Jesus is for you. And that means this. This is the so, as simple as I can say it. Your chief identity is not your success or your struggle. It is not your fortune or your failure. It is not your culture or your customs. Your chief identity is in King Jesus. He is your identity. Your right is with God and your compensation is with God because Jesus has called you to attention and he has come, you have come to worship him. And you have found his grace and his love over you saying, I am loved, I am blessed, I'm okay in Jesus. Your identity is in him. And he is your imitation too. He's not only for you, but he modeled life for you. Jesus modeled life for you. If Jesus' ministry, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, was functionally focused on providing real life benefits to people of need, let me just list a few things. Healing the blind and lame, food for the hungry, mercy for the accused, reconciliation for the discriminated, honor to children, friendship to the lonely. If the function of Jesus' ministry was to people in this place, providing real-life benefits to people in need, what is the function of the ministry of your life to look like? Is bringing heaven to the streets optional? No. It's not. Because your identity is in Jesus, because your salvation and your peace and your hope is in him, because you can trust in the final outcome that you're right with God and that your compensation is in God because of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, because he was perfectly obedient, because Jesus relates with you in your struggle, but he also offers the life that you could not live. He was for you what you could never be for yourself because all of that is true. God's grace is upon you and you can freely then seek to model your life imitating Jesus, not to earn God's love, but because of God's love, you want to live like Jesus. Bringing heaven to the streets. Here's my prayer, friends, is that we, because our identity is rooted in Jesus, 
and his life and his death and his resurrection and the grace and mercy of God upon us, that we would endeavor out of freedom and because of mercy and grace to functionally care about bringing real life blessings to people in need. Why? Because our Savior did it. That we would sacrifice our time and talent and treasure to benefit others. Why? Because our Savior sacrificed it all. This is why Serve Week is not just an event. It's not about this one week to sign up and serve. It's not about that. We want you to, but it's because we want to catalyze a culture where we are okay with disadvantaging ourselves to advantage others because Jesus did that for us. We want to be a people that live like Jesus because we're loved by Jesus. And we want to be a people that can say, at Crossbridge, I belong here, and so does my neighbor. That every single person that you meet, you say, you know where you belong? My church. Because Jesus invites you. Not because my church is more special than any church. You're invited to any church where Jesus is preached. But you belong here. And I hope you know that you belong here too, friends. Because Jesus invites you.